Hi, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. This is Erin Free-Smith. Today we'll be discussing a new book by Anita Hannig. It's called Beyond Surgery, Injury, Healing, and Religion at an Ethiopian Hospital. It was recently published by the University of Chicago Press. Welcome, Anita. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, So I want to jump straight in. Um, Can you first just start by uh, telling us about yourself and your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an anthropologist by training, um, and I actually took my first anthropology class in high school in Sedona, Arizona. Um, But as you can probably tell from the accent, I'm not Mm -hmm. from here originally. I moved um, to the United States when I was 16, and um, actually to attend that high school in Arizona. And my parents stayed behind, and my entire family stayed behind. Um, And so they just had the grace to let me do my thing over here, overseas. And um, so, and once I started taking my first anthropology class, I have not looked back. And I did anthropology as a major at Reed College in Oregon, and then later on um, for my PhD at the at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And um, but before I settled on this topic, I was actually working for an NGO called Mercy Corps in Iraq. Sure. And on one of my R and R trips, which we had at the time, I got to go to Eritrea, which is. Um, which used to be a part of Ethiopia and was colonized by the Italians in the late 19th century. And um, and I was visiting a colleague who lived over there at the time and was working for that same NGO, and I was absolutely fascinated by the country and by the food and um, just by the uh, rich history of that area of the world. And, um, and initially, I had really wanted to do research actually in Eritrea, um, but because of the political climate at the time, and arguably even now, it was actually really difficult for researchers to get a permission to get permission to do research there, and it was um, going to be the kind of research where the government was going to surveil you at every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had known this from other researchers who was who had previously done research in Eritrea, and so. When I started my studies in anthropology at the University of Chicago, I still sort of had in the back of my mind that I wanted to return to that part of the world and do research there. And um, and then basically settled on Ethiopia as kind of the next closest thing to um, Eritrea. Mm-hmm. And um, spent a couple of summers in Ethiopia looking for a project. Originally, I was really interested in doing stuff in um, one of Ethiopia's many internal refugee camps. Um, they have refugee camps um, on the Sudanese border, on the Somalia border, um, and in northern Ethiopia also of Eritreans. But again, politically, it was too contentious of a subject at the time. And then um, one summer when I was when I was in Ethiopia, I um, basically stumbled upon the Fistula Hospital. A friend introduced me, and we received one of their sort of official tours. And I immediately thought, oh, my God, this is this is an anthropological project, right? You have Mm -hmm. these women who suffer from these very difficult childbirth injuries um, that lead to them leaking urine and sometimes feces um, and that are a result of obstructed labor and uh, prolonged childbirth. And and in most cases, what happens is that the the baby does not survive the labor. and the story that at the time I was told when we were given this tour and, you know, later on I read up on the story is that these women become social outcasts of their community and are essentially relegated to the outskirts of their village where a hut is being built for them and they essentially languish in 
basically a pool of their own urine and are being totally neglected by everyone and divorced by their husbands. So I thought at the time, oh, wow, this is kind of, you know, the classic uh, story of marginalization and, you know, anthropologists tend to work with um, disadvantaged sections of populations. So I thought, oh, wow, this is a really interesting medical topic um, and a topic that that really is very rich for exploration. Mm So I wrote, you know, my funding proposals and eventually made it to what we as anthropologists call the field. And upon entering um, my research context, really noticed that the story that I had been told about this condition wasn't, or didn't at all coincide with what the women that I was doing research with told me about their experience. And um, because originally my project design had actually been to spend some time at the hospital doing research there and then follow some of the women as they were being reintegrated after a successful surgery. And, and it just turned out that there was no such enigmatic return because people weren't the ostracized pariahs that I had, I had um, thought they would be in the mm-hmm. first place. And initially I was kind of confounded by that. I thought, well, Maybe I'm just not meeting the right type of women. Maybe I need to just change the demographics of the people I'm working with. Because all the women I was working with, I mean, they certainly had horrible hardships as a result of this injury that makes you as an adult woman incontinent. But none of them, but actually in almost all cases, their kin had stepped up to provide for them. And neighbors had come together to provide food and Nobody had been pushed to the outside of any sort of village. Right. <laughs> and, um, but that is exactly the stories that, that had been told and that keeps being told um, through outlets of the New York Times and other um, sort of top journalistic um, media. And so, so I started talking to older women because I thought, well, they had been living with fistula their whole lives. Maybe they had been the ones, you know, who had experienced that kind of treatment. And even those women um, had been lovingly cared for by their neighbors and by their kin. And um, so then I actually changed my research design and thought, okay, I think what I really need to do rather than kind of follow these women back to their villages, which which in and of itself would have been logistically pretty complicated, I want to actually see what goes into the making of the story here at the hospital and how women experience um, the space of the hospital as as a... as kind of a space of encounter right. um, between, you know, themselves and and their ideas about their bodies, about religion, about healing, and what the hospital is, um, what the hospital essentially um, things happens to them and, and treats them according to kind of that, that, that framework, or whether or not that story comes from somewhere else, and it's just kind of something that is being used to raise money for this pretty obscure condition. And I say obscure because in the grand scheme of things, many people have not heard of obstetric fistula, but um, it affects about at least 1 million women and most of whom live in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Well, and so were you able to ascertain where that narrative comes from? Did it come from uh, people within Ethiopia who were trying to raise funds or was that a Western external model that was being thrust upon it? Um, I think initially... So I, I had I had the fortune to to encounter some um, some really old letters, some really old fundraising letters that are from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that were written by one of the co-founders of the hospital in Ethiopia, mm-hmm. and parts of that story come up in the letters. And he, Reginald Hanlon, at the time, he had gotten 
um, his story a little bit from other people who had worked on obstetric fistula before. So there's a, there's a way in which that story goes back um, quite a few decades, but the current iteration of it is a little bit different, and I can talk later about how it's different now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a way in which um, this idea of fistula pilgrims, the way that what, what he called them at the time, even existed back then, but um, the way fistula has been covered all over the, the world is almost the same. So in, in so Nicholas Kristof uh, writes a lot of columns about obstetric fistula in the New York Times, and he has called um, fistula patients the what is it the first uh, the twenty um, first century lepers mm-hmm. or the modern lepers of our times and the most wretched people on the planet is how he calls them, <laughs> and people have just kind of taken that narrative um, and run with it and not super questioned it because it really feeds into certain archetypes that we have of um, certain sort of stereotypes of, um, you know, African barbarity or savagery mm-hmm. or things like that where uh, people like people with uh, people who are sick will be ostracized by their villagers, right? Because that does happen around certain illnesses that it occasionally happens. Um, but it has, and, and this is the way lepers used to be treated. And in fact, Christoph did some of his research um, at a place in Niger that used to be a leprosarium, and so now is a fistula hospital. But then he took that designation of, oh, these used to be lepers, to, to now say, oh, fistula patients are the modern-day lepers. Right. And it's really, yeah, it's very curious, um, because once the story has kind of been um, uh, kind of set in motion, it almost perpetuates itself to the extent that the fistula hospital is has been using it and, and constructing all its programming around it. So you walk into the ward of the Addis Ababa fistula hospital and you have that story told in a series of paintings. Um, they made a movie about the story that has a patient go through that, that story of ostracization, the husband abandons her, she gets a miracle surgery and is reinstated as a human being and comes back to her repentant family. So, so family, uh, fistula patients come to the hospital, watch this movie, see the paintings, and but they don't often buy it. So in our interviews, they would often say things like, wow, that, that was really horrible what happened to this woman in the film, but my mother didn't treat me like that. Or, um, you know, I... You know, that was really nice how her friend um, behaved uh, when she got fistula and stuff. But my uh, and that was like how how my family reacted or something. But they never but all of them said that they that they hadn't been sort of pushed to the outside of a village. Mm -hmm. But of course, what's interesting here is that there are ways of the way shame works and the way that exclusion, uh, the the way that sort of people self-police their bodies that to an outside audience might look as if somebody is discriminating against them. But, um, but when you actually look closer and you, you understand a little bit more about the cultural dynamics, it turns out that there are really um, complex negotiations that are happening within a marriage um, between kin and who steps up to take care of somebody and how shame, basically the idea of shame, carries different valences in different settings, that's really, really interesting, and that's really worth looking at. And that doesn't at all, maybe on the outside it may look like, oh, so-and-so is sequestered in this house, Um, when in reality there's a lot of work that goes into making sure that certain information doesn't leave the family, but without kind of this um, 
this idea of discrimination. It's a, it's a way of preventing certain things from spilling outside the household. Sure. But and mainly this kind of um, women really self-policed themselves and weren't really told by other people they couldn't, you know, attend funerals or markets or anything like that. But they themselves were so ashamed of their condition that they often opted out of social encounters. Sure. So, so as you started this ethnographic study, upon what did you base the, the framework of the study? In, in, in the scholarly sense, where was the, the theoretical framework that, that you believe you fit into here? Yeah, great. Um, so, so I think there are two main interventions that I see for my work. And one is in my field and one is kind of outside of classic academia. But the two are very connected. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, so the, my main intervention here is really in the, into the social suffering literature. And, um, and as part of that, there, and so in anthropology and outside of anthropology even, um, there, scholars have found it really useful to use the analytical framework of, stru- of structural violence, mm-hmm. um, which is an analytical framework that's used to argue that there are certain large-scale socioeconomic and political factors that really force individuals um, into situations beyond their control. Um, and so especially when you talk about um, things like affliction, um, illness, and things like that, um, the structural violence framework has a way of explaining those things um, and their destructive effects. And basically they talk about it in terms of social crisis as both kind of being a function of social crisis and emblematic of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the suggestion here is often, well, well, first of all, so the advantage of that kind of framework is that it really moves from individual culpability or cultural culpability for illness to a framework that really appreciates the socioeconomic and political inequalities. And so there's something really useful in thinking about fistula as something that actually used to happen in the United States and in Europe before people had access to a cesarean section, but usually doesn't happen anymore because when there's obstructed labor here, people can get themselves to a hospital. Right. And in Ethiopia, in rural Ethiopia, that's just not the case. Even if women arrive at a ho- local health center, they cannot get a cesarean section. So what ends up happening is that the baby in- essentially dies inside of them mm-hmm. and inflicts this this damage on their bladder and often sometimes their rectum. So, um, so the structural violence framework is really useful in really getting us to think about these global inequities um, where stuff, where things like that can happen, um, but it often also creates this this notion that people's mechanisms for dealing with with injury are rendered completely obsolete by um, these larger structural forces, mm-hmm. and that their lives really become bereft of meaning and purpose, and really falter under the weight of things that they cannot control. And and then there's also often an implicit assumption that medicine, or especially biomedicine, saves the day. And, and that's a really un- uncomplicated view of some of these global health missions. Um, and part of what underlies the structural violence framework is that there's a certain universal quality to suffering that transcends culture. So that it's almost like we don't really, um, we, don't know, we don't need to look at the particularities of people suffering. Suffering and violence are kind of the same all over. Mm-hmm. And so through that, you kind of impose your own meta narrative of what suffering is. And, and what I'm trying to do in the book is to really think about how injury and illness are actually experienced and how, um, how we can think of biomedicine not, not just as beneficial and uncontested, but to also look at how um, 
and I can talk about this a little bit later, um, how in certain circumstances the benefits are very ambiguous. Um, and so when we when we talk about fistula, um, there's a certain preconce- preconceived notion of victimhood and exclusion that really articulates with the Christoph narrative that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So the scriptive narrative around the injury and what happens to people who get it. And, um, and the only difference here is that Christoph um, really blames cultural practices like early marriage for fistula right. and almost in his early work almost didn't at all talk about insufficient health access. And the structural violence you know, framework does talk about it. Um, but so, so basically, um, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is to really think about, um, how people, um, how to get us beyond thinking about suffering as an a priori category and, um, and to not assume that there are certain values that are the same everywhere. Because so for instance, if you talk about infant death, so most of the women that I talked to had lost a baby through, you know, their ordeals. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's a certain pre-assumption that I think we make that people who lose their babies must be, um, that that is a deplorable outcome, that um, people, um, people who don't feel grief for babies who are lost are heartless or um, are somehow, um, I, I, I don't know how to say it. But no, they're, they're, less than human. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good way of thinking about it. And Nancy Shepard-Hughes, who also works in the structural violence framework, has written about infant death in Brazil. And you can tell from the way she writes about it that she's shocked that people wouldn't mourn um, their stillborns or um, that people Mm -hmm. would let infants uh, die and things like that. And then she sort of goes into some explanations, but you can tell that she herself cannot get beyond kind of this imposed framework of, oh, there needs to be grief, there needs to be mourning for an infant. Mm-hmm. And in Ethiopia, the women I talked with, um, almost all of them said that they actually didn't feel grief. And the reason for that, the reasons for that were worked kind of on multiple levels. On one level, they said that they were actually more concerned about their own potential death while all of this was happening, that they nearly didn't make it. And a lot of them felt that they that their infant had damaged them, mm-hmm. and and then on maybe even a larger level that might be even more significant is that if an infant dies, if you're an Orthodox Christian, and an infant dies before it's baptized, it's right. not considered to be an appropriate subject of grief. And so, um, so the the women still thought that even an unbaptized child could go to heaven, um, because in their eyes it hadn't really done anything wrong, but. Um, but they didn't think, but this child was not a Christian. And so it wasn't something um, that was kind of appropriately mourned. And of course, you know, they were, they were sad, but they weren't, um, one of them said something like, if a bird falls from a tree, we don't think that we lost anything. So if this baby died inside of me, I didn't lose anything because I never saw this child. And what in Amharic, the word um, for seeing also means that you never came to know this child, so you never experienced this child as a person. Right. And that's really what she meant, that this um, this child was never, she could never make it her own, so she didn't feel like she really lost anything because she never knew this child in a way. Right. So it all kind of goes together between, you know, children not being, or unbaptized children who die not being appropriate objects of grief, but also socially, right, this child hadn't been um, absorbed into her family or into, or they, she never developed a relationship to that child, which is very different from the way that we think about, 
you know, women building attachments to even their fetus in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in utero, right. in utero. So, um, so, so I found this, so these kinds of things, right, this is what anthropology cares about is really trying to, um, interrogate certain categories that we tend to feel are, should be universal or are universal and to really show that, um, there are other ways of thinking about human frailty, human finitude, um, and human emotions and things like that. Right. So it's just a different cultural outlook that needs exactly. to be taken into consideration. Could it also have been, to a certain extent, also some sort of a survival mechanism? You know, they needed to move past because there was nothing that they could do about the situation. Yeah, certainly. Um, and, and I probably might not boil it down to just that. Um, because religiously, there are just so many ways of thinking about unbaptized uh-huh. children but yeah i mean certainly there's there's also a way of um you know the infant mortality rate is very high many women that i talked to had seven or eight children and only half of them survived right so um but i think it's really it's really important to to think about um not kind of imposing this universalist narrative of suffering and I think part of what the structural violence literature does is that it suggests that we do that mm-hmm. and um and I and I think there's something to be lost here if we don't also then think about how illness opens up complex negotiations between you and your family between you and your husband between you and your priest and kind of how people deal with that and how um as horrible as this condition is that people really find ways of um accommodating themselves and arranging their lives around it and are finding creative ways of solving it mm-hmm. that don't all boil down to surgery. And often surgery, yes, can be very effective, but often also it's not effective. And then people still have to live with this injury. Right. And so because that because that narrative isn't the necessarily the pervasive narrative on the ground, why does it persist, particularly in the Western world? Is this merely a fundraising tool? I, I tend to think that it is, um, in part, a fundraising tool because um, there are so, I mean, if you, if you kind of look at the landscape of global humanitarian funding, there are so many conditions and so many different illnesses that vie for attention. Mm-hmm. And there's something about the way that the fistula narrative has been carved out as, oh, yeah, that's the one where women, you know, become these pariahs and sit in a house by themselves and then get saved by surgery that is the narrative right and um and that is how donors have responded to it and the fistula hospital receives almost all of its funding from foreign donors mm-hmm. and private donors and the story has worked and the story is, has usually um kind of been accepted at faith value at face value sorry um so I think there's something about that. Um, and often what's so interesting is that women, even women who didn't experience this treatment or who don't fit the narrative, which is almost most of the women I talked to, um, they then took part of the narrative as their own. So when they, um, for instance, when they watched the movie that I, talk, that I talked about a little bit earlier, mm. um, and then I would interview them and to ask about, um, well, what, why do you think you got fistula and stuff? People, so the movie suggested that early marriage was to blame for it. Um, so then women would say, oh, early marriage, because so the idea behind early marriage is that if you get married early, your pelvis is not developed. Right. And so when you're trying to push the baby out, the baby gets stuck. So this woman who had had eight children before she sustained fistula um, then told me that early marriage was to blame for her fistula, <laughs> which in her case just made no sense. Um, 
but but you could see women sort of borrowing from the lexicon of the narrative or trying to kind of take on certain aspects of the narrative because that's how they've been kind of told to make sense of their experience. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, certain part, yeah, I mean, certain parts of it, of course, were true, right? That you know, you have an abusive mother-in-law, and of course, they could relate to that. They always said, you know, I hate my mother-in-law; she made me do this and this. Um, but really, I mean, in in my entire year of research, I never came across a single woman who had become the social pariah that Nicholas Chris writes about, and that we hear about, and that the women, you know, see when they enter the hospital in terms of the paintings, the radio broadcasts, the posters, everything. Right. That's that's so interesting that that your narrative would be completely different than the than the one that's that's shown over here. Um, so speaking about your your subjects, what what other um, areas did you find to to find documentation for this project? Yeah, so basically, so my research process mainly involved um, two things. So I, I lived at the hospital in Bahada in northern Ethiopia, where I did most of my research. So I lived, I actually moved in with the nurse aides um, of the hospital who are all former patients who couldn't be cured and who now um, work at the, at, the, at the hospital to perform, you know, um, what's the word, auxiliary duties in the um, OR and in the ward. And they were extremely gracious about having me rent a room from, from, their, from them. Um, and in the morning, I would sit in on the classes that the fistula patients took at the hospital. And in the afternoon, I would interview individual patients and patient groups. And I would go on field trips um, to health centers. I would go with my nurse aid friends to church services. Um, and and then the last three months of my research, I, I moved to this other settlement that features in, in Chapter 6, mm-hmm. which is a training and rehabilitation site for incurable fistula patients who who have what's called a urostomy or stoma bag, um, which is similar to a colostomy bag, but for urine. Mm-hmm. And so they have been essentially uh, put into the settlement of um, patients and they're being trained to for a life outside of the hospital. So I spent my last three months living there. Um, but beyond, so beyond kind of this deep hanging out, as anthropologists call it, mm-hmm. um, I also gained access to these very crucial archival materials of letters that the founders of the first fistula hospital in Ethiopia, Reginald Hamlin and Catherine Hamlin, had sent to donors all over the world um, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So that's kind of where the historical element of the study came in, but then most of it, most of the other material came from interviews with patients, with nurse aides, um, some doctors, and, um, and really kind of hanging out at the hospital, spending time there, and um, observing clinical routines and talk. Yeah, the main thing, though, was talking to patients. Mm-hmm. And were there other um, Western people there while you were doing yeah. your research? I mean, was it because they have these external funders, largely foreign funders, uh, Was there were there people coming in to check out the progress and things like that while you were there? There were foreign surgeons um, who mm-hmm. worked in other parts of Ethiopia, uh, of Africa who were being trained for surgeries on fistula patients. Okay. So I think there were maybe two or three while I was there who um, who basically interned with the main surgeon at the fistula hospital in Bahida, who was Australian, and, um, and who then go back to other sites inside um, somewhere else in Africa to do these surgeries. And um, what was interesting is that, well, and they, I mean, the surgeons themselves don't really care that much about that story. 
I mean, some of them really? know that it's not all accurate, but they are just there to do the work. Right. And um, and there weren't really. Um, I mean, there were people from the Clinton Health um, Access Initiative. I think at the time they were renovating the entire hospital that the Fistel Hospital was just a tiny part of, the public hospital in Bahada. Mm-hmm. So there were there were consultants there, and there were some medical students who were doing rotations at that hospital. Um, but besides that, most of that, because I wasn't at the main hospital in Addis Ababa most of the time, I was in Bahada, which is a regional hospital. I didn't see many of the um, kind of maybe foreign donors or other people come through. But I think the Addis Ababa Fistula Hospital is is more of a, a place for that. And they also part of why so many people come for training is because they have really perfected the surgery, surgical techniques because they were the first hospital ever, um, the first hospital in the world um, that focused ex- uh, exclusively on fistula okay. in Ethiopia. And so that's why they have a long history of um, trying to perfect the technique and training other surgeons. And that, that history really persists still today. Right. So how did, how did the women who were being treated there who, or who later worked there, how did they see you? Good question. I'm not entirely sure how they saw me. Um, I mean, I think um, initially they thought, I think they thought I was part of the hospital, mm-hmm. which was, of course, a little bit problematic. Um, I think some of them thought I was a doctor. But then um, when I noticed that some, and so sometimes they would pull me aside and show me things on their bodies. <laughs> and and I never wore a coat or anything. And then I actually, and I never, I actually made a point of not attending the gynecological examinations that they did. And even not attending surgeries, I only attended two surgeries because it felt, it just felt too invasive. Mm-hmm. And I also really wanted to draw a line between myself and the senior medical um medical people who were there and I didn't want people I didn't want patients to think I was a doctor or any sort of medical practitioner and so what I would initially I did the interviews in the hospital in kind of a private room but then um, we ended up doing them outside behind the hospital where there weren't people walking by all the time and um, but it was actually a really difficult thing to navigate because in a certain way I think people maybe felt obligated to talk to me mm-hmm because I think they thought it was part of their the routine or, you know, the things that you do when you come to this hospital. And I made sure that they knew that they didn't have to, but I think there was still, I mean, there's a lot of the patients feel extreme deference towards senior medical uh, personnel and sadly to say Westerners also. Sure. So, so I think a lot of them just kind of felt obligated to talk mm-hmm. and, um, and at my at the second site where where I did my research at Destamenda, the incurable uh, patient post, there nobody wanted to talk to me actually, mm. <laughs> because they had been so inundated with researchers um, who wanted to know about this, uh, you know, private medical device that they were carrying around with them to hold their urine or to collect their urine that they actually wanted to keep that for themselves and didn't want to talk, and so. They had actually instigated a boycott against my research <laughs> for, I don't know, the first few weeks I was there. And um, and it took a little bit of persuasion um, and coaxing by um, by some of the people who, who were in charge there. And my explaining a little bit more what I was doing and my actually dropping a lot of questions about the, the stoma bag mm-hmm. in, in, in the end. Because I, I realized, well, if people really didn't want to talk about it. Um, then I didn't want to push them, and so we talked about other things. And even the people at the Fistula Hospital, I 
it took me a while to warm up to questions around fistula. So I would often use the interviews to talk generally about practices around childbirth, about um, sort of women's roles in the household, and general kind of kin structures before I would kind of slowly make my way into, you know, the experience with fistula. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like they, in general, were comfortable with you by the end? Do you feel like they were opening up? Or, or did you feel at all that they were um, telling you maybe what they thought you wanted to hear? Or did were you able to break down that wall? Well, it was interesting because if they had told me what I wanted to hear, I think they would have given me that story. Um, um, because initially I was really fishing for that story because that's what I thought was the normative fistula experience mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, very naively, but, um, but when I wasn't getting that, I, I kept kind of prodding and, um, and kind of, and that's kind of when the slow realization, uh, occurred that, wow, this, the story is actually in large part bogus. Um, but I, the, the, the issue was that people didn't really spend that much time at the hospital they spend about the average stay i think was 18 days oh wow 13 to 18 days or something so not that long and so um it wasn't often that i got to talk to people twice i would usually only get to talk to a person once and it was all uh either before the surgery or after the surgery and um there were a couple of people that I that I made a point of interviewing more often, especially the ones that had complications and had to stay longer. Mm-hmm. And there was one woman whom I actually did follow back to her village, and I interviewed her three or four times in total. And um, and she was older; she was seventy years old, and she had lived with fistula for her whole life. Wow. And um, and that one was really interesting um, to see because she um, just going back to her village and talking to her. Um, um, her relatives and her neighbors and things like that really kind of gave me a much broader view of um, how they thought about fistula. And the other thing is that many people didn't have a name for it, but they found out the name fistula when they got to the hospital. Mm -hmm. They would often say, my problem. Like, that's how they would describe it. Um, And often they were the only ones that they knew who had experienced this. So Mm -hmm. they had no ways of describing it initially. Um, And it was only really when they got to the hospital that they were able to name it and to put it into like a larger narrative and which is why it's significant that the hospital kind of forces them into a certain narrative. But um, the other thing is of course that in, in Ethiopia, one thing that anthropologists have written about a lot is these patron client relationships that um, in order to kind of be successful socially, you have to put yourself under the protection of a patron. And, um, and I could, maybe see a little bit of that dynamic in our in our talks where more often in order to find protection or order or to get something that you need you will um you will maybe exaggerate certain things that happen to you in order to to find somebody who you know will protect you or sponsor you or give you something and um so if anything i uh, i was i was aware of the, those dynamics and thought well maybe even some of the things women were saying were potentially a little exaggerated here and there. Um, but maybe also this is how the hospital initially came to the story mm-hmm. because of this intense kind of patron client system where you have to, um, you have to make yourself into a deserving subject of a certain kind. And, um, and, but the only thing that people ever asked me for specifically, this one woman asked me if I could put her in touch with a lawyer because she was going to sue her husband because um, 
he hadn't uh, distributed or he, he hadn't divided the property equally in, in Ethiopia in divorces mm-hmm. um, you have to divide everything up 50 50 yeah yeah um, at least in the area where I worked in uh, among Orthodox Christian and Amhara region um, yeah so um, I don't in, in the end I don't know what they thought of me in in the second in the second research site um, people thought I was a spy at first. <laughs> They thought I was um, I was there to expedite their um, their exit from this from this community, and everybody wanted to stay and knew they had to leave eventually. And they thought I was there to do a survey to make sure that um, to kind of expedite, yeah, um, yeah, their exit. Mm. But um, so that was uncomfortable for for all of us, for them, <laughs> and for me. <laughs> right. And and. But then there was this moment, I mean, and sometimes in the field you have these magical moments. Well, in this case, it was a kind of a sad moment. One of the patients died. Mm. And um, and I, you know, I attended all the funeral celebrations and the mourning uh, rituals and all those things. And I think, and then we, we drove to the hospital to see, to watch her body being carried out on a stretcher by her relatives. And, um, hang on, I'm just going <clears> to... <throat> And um, and I think when the women kind of saw how I participated and that I cared, I think they softened a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it was actually after that after that event that they came to my house and said, "Okay, I'm willing to talk to you now." <laughs> That's incredible. But only, I mean... Yeah, only after I'd shown that that kind of solidarity and that kind of engagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think um, that chapter that you're referencing, or, or your your final um, uh, site, was was a particularly interesting chapter for me because it was, um, if even though the narrative was not being fulfilled with the outcast women coming, being fixed, and then returning home, you know, whole women, the the women that you were interviewing, they certainly were being sort of cured, but the women in the final chapter were stuck in this in this new place or maybe they didn't see themselves as being stuck but they were they had to um i don't know they were being retrained right yeah exactly yeah so the the initial idea behind the settlement was that women would live there permanently that the hospital would permanently take care of them um because it was thought that they could never return to their communities with this you know apparatus which Mm -hmm. is like i said kind of like a colostomy bag but for your urostomy bag and um, what was really interesting is that the hospital thought that, that the hygienic conditions were such that women wouldn't be able to properly take care of their bags at home and they couldn't get the replacement bags easily because you need to change the bag every three days. Right. And, um, and they were being imported from Ireland, actually. And the hospital had them for free for the women and so did all the outreach hospitals all over Ethiopia. But, um, but then the hospital... Um, did more and more of those operations, uh, they are called ileal conduit operations, every year. And so they knew that the settlement that they had founded would fill up in no time. And so they needed to come up with a different solution for these women. And so the next, after a long string of experiments, um, the vision was that they would be trained as these self-sufficient entrepreneurs and settle in communities around the Fistula Hospital as you know, waitresses or as, um, what other things, spice makers or seamstresses and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but the women were terrified. They didn't want to um, suddenly be on their own in a totally strange community when they, when you know, they had lived in the settlement for years. Right. And this had really become their community. And, um, and to be suddenly kind of um, told to stand on their own feet was really terrifying for them. 
and um, and in that hus- in that in that specific uh, settlement, there was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of a lot of clashes of different ideologies of dependency um, and community versus um, self sufficiency and microcredit. I mean, there are a lot of microcredit approaches that were being tested out in that community, mm-hmm. and um, and a lot of these approaches depend on you know, this idea of the self-sufficient individual. Right. And not only did women not necessarily come from that background, but they also hadn't been, hadn't been sort of trained in this, in this way for the longest time. And now suddenly they were, and they were taking these new classes where they're being told, um, they're being taught words like my profit, my customers. And they had to learn math through uh, paper money and, and things like that, and they were really trained to become these business women, and there was a lot of resistance against that. Mm-hmm. And where were these um, programs coming from? I mean, this feels like an extremely Western concept, and we've got this Western yeah. basis hospital, but it was being supported by the Ethiopian government, though, correct? So the Ethiopian government, yeah, it was a it was an interesting mixture because um, a lot of they had hired a lot of Western consultants over the years, um, but then they had partnered with um, with this Ethiopian-sponsored microcredit association um, that had gotten these loans from the Ethiopian government to, you know, run their own bakery. And they had women from these organizations come to Desamenda and give a talk about that. And they would tell women, you don't be dependent on this organization. You have to, you know, buy your own bread. You need to care for your own. Um, you can't be dependent on anybody. And the... Um, the not the CEO um, the um, what's it called I mean the boss of the settlement was essentially saying yeah we are really you know this is um, this is a recent trend of deinstitutionalization mm-hmm. so we are we are right with the times you know we um, we want to you know these buzzwords around like we need to empower these women we need to make them entrepreneurs we need to make them self sufficient when part of what had made them not self sufficient is having this medical device. Right. right, that um, that actually really curtailed uh, where they could be and what they could do in a way, um, and so and there were just so many competing narratives around what it meant for women to have this bag because initially the hospital said, oh well, with this bag you you actually can't work, you can't do this, you can't do that, and suddenly women were told, no, you can do everything you want, um, and you have to stand on your own feet. But you're not allowed to go home. But you're not allowed <laughs> to go home. Yeah. Yeah, that's. It's extremely complex. Yeah, so, it's very complex. Yeah. Right. So how, how did you feel like they were handling that? I mean, obviously, a lot of cases are very individual, and, and you did a very yeah. good job of, of profiling individuals and, and their reactions. But was there a new narrative that formed out of it, or is it too soon to tell? Um, I, I mean, some of that old fistula narrative was being recycled by some of the people who work there because um, some of the reasoning why you couldn't send people back was because, oh, well, they were discriminated against when they had fistula. Can you imagine what would happen if they came back with this bag kind of thing? Right. Um, but the women themselves, I mean, again, I used some of their narratives to inform my larger um ideas about what happens with women when they get fistula, because they also talked to me about when what, what it was like when that happened. But many of these women actually hadn't been home in a while mm-hmm. um, because they had spent so much time in a hospital trying to get a cure. So some of them had been in and out of hospitals for like three or four years and trying to find a cure, going back, trying more surgeries. But eventually, especially with these women, there was just nothing left to repair. And so that's when they got this um, urine diversion for themselves. Um, 
I think, I mean, many of the women were, um, they were quite savvy. They were doing um, all these handicraft projects for foreign tourists that would come to the settlement. Um, they, this is another thing that the hospital had encouraged. So they would skip classes and, well, the hospital didn't encourage them to skip classes, but they skipped hmm. classes to make these, um, I think these like sewn blankets and these um, baskets and things like that. And they would sell them for at the Fistula Hospital gift shop for a lot of money for them. And, um, and so they had their own ideas of kind of where they wanted to be and how they wanted to make money. And honestly, I mean, part of the issue was that the settlement was so, so luxurious in a way mm-hmm. where they could never replicate those structures outside of the hospital. I mean, they had running water, they had electricity, they had these concrete houses, they didn't have to buy their own food. Um, so the hospital had in many ways made them so profoundly dependent <laughs> And the, which was another one of the sort of ironic things here. Um, mm. But many of their previous narratives of how they coped with fistula were very similar to the narratives I heard from the people at the hospital where I previously lived. Okay. Um, they had, you know, they had developed these really innovative ways of dealing with fistula um, by concealing it. Um, some of them, but actually one of the things is that some of them, even though they had been in and out of hospital for years, they still had husbands who wanted to be back with them. Mm-hmm. And the husbands didn't know that the women now had, most of them didn't know that they had um, this ileal conduit um, of the stoma back. Mm-hmm. And, um, but they, they said, you know, my husband, you know, he calls me all the time. He wants to be back with me, but I don't want to be with him anymore. Um, Cause I also, I don't want to tell him about this bag, but there are, I mean, there are husbands who hang on to their marriages even throughout years of hospitalization. So that I think was something that really surprised me too. Yeah, and um, really kind of counters this whole narrative of abandonment. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so looking back at your research of, at your year and then also of your time writing this up, do you think that the the discourse around fistula should change internationally? And and if it does change, how do you think that'll change uh, fundraising efforts and that sort of thing? I mean, is there a push against changing the narrative? Yeah, um, I actually shared this book with the person who used to be the medical director of the Fistula Hospital at the time, and he he had always been really supportive of my work, and he received it, and he um, was really glad, (laughs) and he said, um, he no longer works for the Fistula Hospital, but he said, okay, well, you need to get this to the right type of people who can actually do something about changing this narrative. And there have been, you know, small efforts to change it, um, mainly not from those organizations, but there have there has been a little bit more of an acknowledgement that surgery is not the um, miraculous panacea it's been made out to be. Um, there have been, um, but there's still like this pervasive emphasis on early marriage and kind of this this pathologization of culture that I'm trying to write against in the book. Um, but I wrote, I mean, I wrote the book for a broad audience of practitioners in global health, for NGO workers, and I'm hoping that, you know, people can, this is really something people can pick up. Um, and, I, and I mean, I'm hoping that we can change it because the condition itself is bad enough that I don't think you need to then also invent this entire sort of story of victimhood and exclusion to, to kind of get at people's hearts mm-hmm. because the conclusion, uh, the, the, yeah, the situation is, I mean, when women, you know, have this happen to them, that's, that's a horrible thing for many of them. And so mainly just kind of focusing on that, but also focusing on how women actually cope with this, I think is, is really, um, 
really imperative. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then maybe uh, acknowledging more that surgery um, isn't always the answer and that there are other women who have to live with these um, incurable injuries for a while. And um, <clears throat> yeah, and I, and, I just, and I just hope that we can get to a place where we can acknowledge that people deal with these misfortunes in very complex ways. And, you know, and, and I think we, we tend to reserve for ourselves this, um, this notion that, you know, we're all individuals and we all um, we deal with these things kind of idiosyncratically, but we, we don't, in the Fistula narrative, that complexity is not given to anybody. Right, everybody's kind of subsumed in this meta narrative, and um, just adding this local complexity, and also um, looking at how differently fistula um, operates, for instance, in the religious realm. I write a lot about that mm. in the book. Right, what are how does this affect people's ability to be pious Christians? Right. And um, a colleague of mine who works in Niger has written about this in a Muslim context, and um, yeah, and really just paying attention about uh, paying attention um, not to make assumptions, I think is really really critical, mm-hmm. and not not to let our own cultural categories basically occlude the way that we look at other people's um, conditions and lives. Sure, sure. And so, so what are you what are you working on now? Is this something that you're continuing or? So I'm, I've shifted gears a little bit. Um, I'm still really interested in this overlap between medicine and religion, and I know we didn't mm-hmm. really talk about that, um, but the book talks a lot about how in, for instance, in Amharic, the word Adane means both to heal and to save. Sure. And you can see throughout the book that both patients and doctors really don't think of medicine and religion as these separate categories, but how they're really infused the entire uh, the entire way through, um, through, through surgery, through treatment, through um, how you think about healing. But um, so my next project that I'm working on actually focuses on medical aid in dying mm-hmm. in the United States mainly. So I'm out in Oregon right now doing research on that. And um, there are similar, um, similar conceptions that I'm interested in and really thinking about how differently people approach and think of bodily suffering, um, how they think about their own mortality in a way and... Um, where medicine comes in, where medicine is sometimes too much, mm-hmm. and um, and how people explain things kind of cosmologically, whether through religion or through um, different ways of, yeah, explaining the world. Right. Well, that's great. I, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I think that it will be of great use to a lot of different people. Um, so this is Anita Hannig. Um, we're talking about her book, Beyond Surgery, Injury, Healing, and Religion at an Ethiopian Hospital. It's out now at University of Chicago Press. Thank you very much, Anita. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Erin.